Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 17 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. In a slight change from our usual format, this week will feature two different accidents, which together tell a larger story. The accidents both occurred in Australia, but the larger story is very British in character. The gist of the plot is that a young miscreant commits an antisocial or criminal act, typically whilst under the influence on Oxford-Cambridge boat race night. They manage to escape, but the victim gets a good look at their face. The next day, they are busy congratulating themselves on their lucky escape as they go to lunch to meet their fiancé's father for the first time. Cue hijinks, when this father turns out to be both the victim from the previous night and a magistrate. It's a fun story of comeuppance, but it doesn't happen often in real life. In 1999, at a place called Glenbrook, just outside of Sydney, Australia, two trains collided, killing seven people. There was an extensive inquiry, led by Acting Justice Peter Aloysius McInerney. The resulting report held criticism and recommendations for the operator, the regulator, and the state government. The government agencies were uncooperative, defensive, and slow to act. They did just enough to claim to the rest of the world that Sydney had a safe public transport system for the Olympics, and then it was back to business as usual. In 2003, at a place called Waterfall, just outside of Sydney, Australia, a train derailed, killing seven people. Same operator, same regulator, same state government. There was an extensive inquiry, led by Justice Peter Aloysius McInerney. He was not impressed. A substantial part of the waterfall investigation revisited the findings related to Glenbrook, looking for all the reasons that things hadn't been fixed. Of the 127 recommendations, the final three are an elegant rap on the knuckles for all concerned. That the independent regulator should produce a quarterly report on the implementation and effectiveness of the recommendations. That this report should be tabled in Parliament and that the Minister for Transport should have the independent regulator independently audited to make sure that it was doing its job. There was no end date on these recommendations. In other words, the regulator ended up having to produce reports on the waterfall recommendations four times a year for ten years, have them put into Parliament, and then be independently audited to check that the regulator was still doing its job. While this was a suitable punishment, its effectiveness as a safety mechanism is a bit more doubtful. As of April 2013, most of the recommendations were marked closed, using that ambiguous meaning of the word closed that plagues bad hazard logs everywhere. Hazards should never be closed, because there's always a next action to be carried out. Likewise, having good intentions to do something about a recommendation doesn't mean that that recommendation has been properly resolved. The whole point of McInerney's recommendations was that safety requires ongoing performance measurement, not a one-time stamp of compliance. Despite the rather vicious corporal punishment that all the parties received, McInerney's lesson has not been learned. Let's have a look at these two accidents, starting with Glenbrook. The Glenbrook disaster involved an inter-urban train, the W534, colliding with the rear of another train, the Indian Pacific. For this sort of accident to occur, a train needs to enter a section of track called a block, while the block is still occupied by part of another train. Blocks are protected by signals, so except in rare circumstances, a collision requires a train to go past a signal showing a red 
or danger aspect. Very few accidents involve the signals themselves being incorrect, because they're designed to be fail-safe. That is, if there's any sort of hardware failure, all of the signals show danger instead of green. This isn't quite as safe a solution as it sounds though, because you still need to do something with all of those stopped trains. Having all of your signals turn red works for the few minutes following a failure, but after that it's pretty much as if you didn't have any signals at all, it's not a safe situation. Railways have a special set of rules to handle this, known as degraded operations. Instead of relying on the signals, the drivers rely on information and instructions from the signalers. The signalers in turn get their information from the trains. For example, if the signals go out on a particular block, the first train will proceed at caution. That is, slow enough that the driver can stop if they see something in front. Once that train is completely through the block, they radio the signaler, who now knows that the block is empty so they can send the next train through a little faster. This is never going to be as safe as the automatic signals. No one has quite as much information, and there's a lot more potential for human error. The Indian Pacific, proceeding from Adelaide to Penrith, encountered a red signal. The drivers assumed that it was a genuine signal, and that they needed to wait for a train in front to move on. After they'd been sitting there for a while, they realised that it was probably a failure. So one of the drivers hopped out of the cab to contact the signaller using the signal post telephone. The telephone box was locked, so he hopped back onto the train, grabbed the key, and went back to the telephone. Once he eventually got in touch with the signaller, he learned about the hardware failure, and was authorised to proceed at caution. The train moved forward slowly until it came to the next signal, which was also red. Out the driver popped again, over to the signal box, but this time he couldn't work it to reach the signaller. Since he had already proceeded past a red signal at caution, the rule said that he could proceed past this one as well, so long as he waited one minute at the signal and continued slowly. That's what he did. Meanwhile, train W534 was coming up behind. Unlike the Indian Pacific, 534 had radio contact with a controller, and had been warned about the broken signal. As he approached the signal, the driver radioed the Penrith signaller. I'm right to go past it, am I, mate? he asked, and received the response. Yeah, mate, you certainly are. Now, this may sound a little bit too much like a TV commercial for Australian beer, and not enough like a signaller reminding a driver to proceed at caution. But bear in mind that the signaller didn't actually know that the Indian Pacific was still on that part of the track. It had been quite a while since the Indian Pacific had gone past, and there was no immediate way to see that it was still there. The proximate cause of the accident was train W534 going past this signal at high speed. Once that had happened, the track layout and visibility made the collision pretty much inevitable. The only mitigation available to the driver once he saw the Indian Pacific was to leave his position, automatically applying the emergency brakes, and run down the carriage to warn the passengers. This action actually saved the driver's life as well. We need to ask then, why the train didn't proceed at caution? There are a couple of different factors at play here. The first is that neither the driver nor the signaller realised that the Indian Pacific was still there. The second problem is that they didn't take precautions anyway, regardless of the position of the Indian Pacific. For the first of these, the poor use of available technology is a contributing cause. Even though the signals weren't working, the track circuits were. This means that the Indian Pacific was detectable. In fact, there was a display board down in Adelaide that showed the Indian Pacific, 
but nothing that showed the Indian Pacific to the local signaller. Now for UK listeners, the distance from Adelaide to Glenbrook is almost exactly the distance from Land's End to John O'Groats. For US listeners, think New York and Chicago. The equivalent of the Land's End board showed the train at John O'Groats, but the John O'Groats board didn't. That's what was happening. In Australia, there have been long-standing disputes about the cost-effectiveness and appropriateness of various types of automatic train protection, and those disputes were reignited by this and similar accidents. But providing an indication to the local signaller of the state of the track circuits within their jurisdiction is not a controversial balancing act, particularly not when it's already cost-effective to display the same indications over a thousand kilometres away. As a backup to the track circuits, the trains had radios. The Indian Pacific driver didn't physically need to leave the train to contact the signaller. He did this because of procedural rules. Likewise, the signaller could have simply radioed the Indian Pacific to ask where it was, if the signaller had been trained and instructed to do that. The Indian Pacific wouldn't have even still been there if they hadn't been delayed having to use these silly signal post phones, and by the driver's misunderstanding about whether the second phone was working or not. All of this is only relevant because of how the signaller and the driver reacted to the apparently empty track. The controller in Adelaide should have instructed the driver to proceed at caution anyway when he came to the signal. The signaller should have reminded the driver to proceed at caution, and the driver should have passed the signal slowly, even without being reminded. Once you get three separate people all making these basic mistakes, though, you begin to suspect that the problem is not the people. McInerney said in the Glenbrook report that these were neither irresponsible nor reckless men. They were trying to follow an incomprehensible rule without sufficient training and with inadequate equipment. A significant portion of the Glenbrook report is given over to the particular rule that applied, Safe Working Rule 245. The rule, in its form at the time, had been around for a long time, with considerable evidence that it was not well understood. Rather than recognise and fix this problem, the response had always been to blame the local staff for failing to follow the rule. Put simply, if you have enough complicated, ambiguous and contradictory rules in place, then whenever there's an accident, you can always find a rule and say someone hasn't followed the rules. Additionally, there was what McInerney described as a culture of on-time running. Drivers were reprimanded for failing to meet timetables and required to provide explanations. Signallers were reprimanded if they turned out to be the explanation. All of these things, the technology, the training, the rules, and the culture, are problems with safety management. Failure to detect and fix these problems points to the lack of an adequate safety management system. This is what the final report of the inquiry had to say regarding the responsibility of the Rail Safety Inspectorate, the regulator who was supposed to check these things that the inspectorate to be required to refuse accreditation to an organisation unless satisfied that a. it had a rigorous safety management system conforming to the highest international standards, b. it had an effective safety management plan for the implementation, monitoring and improvement of its systems, c. the board, chief executive and senior management considered the safety of the organisation's activities as its first priority, d. It had an effective system for identifying safety risks and effective mechanisms for controlling those risks, monitoring the effectiveness of the controls, and adjusting them accordingly. And E, 
it had an effective system for determining the priority of activities for removing, reducing, or controlling particular risks. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder why did McInerney feel the need in the 21st century to say that it was the job of the rail inspectorate to make sure that the rail operator had a working safety management system? How the heck could the inspectorate not already understand that this was its job? Let's defer both of those questions and have a look at the second accident, Waterfall. At first glance, the waterfall accident was a simple derailment. A passenger train was travelling at 117 kilometres per hour when it reached a curve rated for 60 kilometres per hour. The excessive speed was the direct cause of the train leaving the rails and overturning. The main questions the investigators had to ask were why was the train travelling so fast and why nothing had been done to slow it down. There were three barriers to prevent a speeding train. The driver, the guard and a mechanical system known as a dead man pedal. The principle of any dead man device is that it needs a constant or periodic active command to prevent it from operating. If the device ever stops receiving that command, the dead man device activates. Dead man devices are used in everything from industrial machinery to spy thrillers. In locomotives, they are used to apply the brakes if the driver becomes incapacitated. This particular dead man device was a pedal that had to be kept halfway depressed. If it stopped being depressed or was depressed the whole way, the emergency brakes got applied. As far as can be established after the accident, the driver was in fact a dead man, or at least unconscious. He was overweight with a history of cardiac problems, and probably he had a heart attack. The dead man switch though had a design flaw such that it wouldn't work correctly with an overweight driver. The guard was asleep, and in any case was unlikely to apply the brake himself due to a combination of training and technical factors. Now this faulty dead man pedal was not a detail that emerged after the waterfall accident. It had been identified as an issue 15 years before the accident. Not only was the pedal known to be unreliable if the driver was overweight, it was also known to be uncomfortable to use, and there was evidence that drivers had been using a convenient flagpole to hold the pedal in the operating position. So there were five immediate safety issues. The poor health of the driver, the fatigue of the guard, the training and procedures for the guard to apply the brakes, the design of the dead man pedal, and the circumvention of the dead man pedal by drivers. There was little chance that any of these was just a problem with that particular train on that particular day. Individually, they each pointed to a failure of the safety management system. Together, they pointed to a safety management system that wasn't operating at all. But wait, there's more. What about that other important part of a safety management system, emergency response? Well, it wasn't operating either. The derailment occurred at a difficult to access location, and the individuals who responded were professional and courageous, no doubt about that. They were hampered though, by a failure to promptly declare a major emergency, by lack of appropriate communications equipment, lack of information about simple things like how to open the doors on the train, and failure to secure the emergency scene, including failure to isolate the electricity. In fact, repeated attempts were made to close the circuit breakers. Now we're pretty lucky that none of these attempts succeeded, or they would have electrocuted the rescue workers. For all of these issues, we can point to multiple points where the operator 
and the safety inspectorate should have noticed and should have acted. We can look at the internal data that was available on health, on fatigue, on procedures, on technical failures and communication failures. We can look at all of the incidents and less serious accidents which had happened, highlighting these problems. We can look at rather major accidents that had occurred elsewhere in Victoria and in England, flagging problems with that particular dead man pedal, and with driver health issues more generally. We can look at rolling stock purchase and modification programs, which should have included technical safety analysis, which should have flagged up all of those problems. Although we have different accidents at Glenbrook and at Waterfall, with different immediate technical causes, both cases point straight to the safety management system. In particular, they point to a lack of through-life safety management. After initial technical or procedural solutions were put into place, safety management simply stopped. No one was observing or checking data to test whether the safety solutions were actually working. No one was monitoring trends to see if old solutions were still adequate, or if new opportunities for improvement should be taken. Despite mounting evidence that the equipment and the procedures weren't adequate, nothing was done. On top of this, the operators were unaware that they weren't managing safety adequately. They thought they were managing safety well. And the regulators weren't aware either. As it turns out, the operators and the regulators have gone through a lot of organisational change since then, for reasons related to waterfall, but also due to other government and political reasons. Australia has a new office of the National Safety Regulator, but many of the recommendations raised by the waterfall report have simply still not been addressed. One of the supposedly closed recommendations from waterfall relates to providing managers with formal training and accreditation in safety management. With the School of Risk and Safety Sciences at the University of New South Wales closed three years ago, there are simply no postgraduate qualifications in system safety available in Australia. That's really the underlying reason why Peter McInerney had to remind people what a safety management system was and why you needed to have one. It's why to answer questions at his inquiry, he basically had to go to the overseas regulators because he couldn't find people in Australia who could tell him what a safety management system was supposed to be. Incidentally, it's also one of the reasons that I teach in the United Kingdom, not in Australia, and the reason that many of the best safety engineers in Australia speak with British accents. For any of my Australian listeners who like to ride trains, you hopefully now have a small sense of how everyone else feels when I talk about things like risk assessment for nuclear power. That's it for this episode. If you enjoy DisasterCast, please take a moment to write a review or recommend the show to someone else. I also give public talks for engineering, science and sceptics groups, and I run longer courses on safety engineering and management for people who pay me money. DisasterCast is now pretty reliably published every second Tuesday at 1pm, so if you're listening to this on the week that it appears, the next episode will be 22nd of October. <laughs>